it helps. All right, here we go. We'll know minutes, won't we? We are studying how we got the Bible, and today we are in the course of our, of course, our study on Christian evidences. And today we're going to focus on the canon of Scripture. What do we mean by the canon of Scripture? You probably have heard the word canon used more recently than talking about the Bible in regard to Star Wars. Has anybody noticed that? You're reading a lot of this stuff about, because Star Wars is big right now with Disney Plus and with the, the whole um, new movie that just came out and a lot of the nerds. And I really wish Daniel was in here for this conversation, both so he could help us with the conversation and we could mock him because of his great love for Star Wars. But... The canon, what does that mean, Aiden? I know you know. In regard to Star Wars, I'll get to the scripture part. Go ahead. Yeah, they're the things that are considered true. So the only reason I have to say that is there are some things that are considered non-canon, right? So what would that mean, to be non-canon? or don't approve of, don't consider legitimate, right? So there have been all these Star Wars books that have been written through the years. Some of them are considered canon. Some of them are considered non-canon. The non-canon ones aren't officially approved. Does that make sense? They're not officially approved. It does make sense. You just don't like it. Doesn't mean it doesn't make sense. All right, so I just use that to illustrate because you probably, if you've read that word at all in the last six months, probably has to do with that. But it's the exact same basic principle. Canon. The things that are of the scriptural canon, the Bible's canon, are those things that are approved, accepted, and considered to be legitimate and authoritative. Does that make sense? So we have things that are canonical, things that are of the canon, like all of your New Testament books. But we have a whole lot of non-canon things that are of a spiritual nature, the Apocrypha from, that is in the Catholic Bible from the, would be at the close of the Old Testament, non-canon. Still very, very spiritually based, and a lot of it has, contains a lot of truth, but not considered accepted and, uh, as far as that goes, approved of. Then we have a whole bunch in the New Testament. We have thousands of letters written over the first and second centuries, or copies of those letters, that were written from Christians to Christians, some of even, even of which have claims to quite impressive authorship, like Peter or Barnabas or Thomas or some of the other. The, what are some of the others that would be very impressive? Uh-huh. Hermias. Yeah, there's, there's several. There's a bunch of them. So, but they're not considered canon. So why is one thing considered canon and one thing is not? What'd you say? The epistle of Barnabas, yeah. So that would be a lot of examples. So as we consider all of the early church writings, and there are many, the question might be asked, how do we know that we have the right books in the Bible? Therefore, the discussion of the canon, which basically means a list of authorized books, is of significant importance to our study. We begin with a measure of faith that God has protected his sacred word, which we will know which we feel confident will last forever. I'm going to sign out a few verses. Who will take Isaiah 40, verse 8? Isaiah 40, 
Thank you. Courtney, Luke 24, 44. He'll take Luke eleven fifty one. Thank you, Mike. And that may be the last one. It is. Okay, Isaiah 40 and verse 8. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God will stand forever. What a fabulous, fabulous truth to rely upon. And that is so important to us because if the scriptures are not reliable, then what do we really know? Even if we believe in God, if the scriptures are not reliable, then what do we do about it? When we believe in God, that's good. But if the scriptures aren't reliable, what do we do about that belief in God? I mean, if the scriptures aren't reliable, then we can't turn to them as an authority, as a standard. So even if we believe in God, we're left with nothing. Nothing. And here's where it becomes really essential to discuss in our present time. If every aspect of the scripture is not reliable, we're still left with nothing. Because who gets to choose which parts are reliable and which parts are not? Because if it's divine revelation, then that means that it supersedes our human wisdom. But if we're basing what we think is divine revelation and what isn't based upon our own human wisdom, then it's still ourselves that are dictating a standard just doing it out of a holy book and picking and choosing what the standard is correct very very important okay the old testament canon over and over in the new testament we see that jesus and his followers thought of some specific writings as scripture this and other good evidence suggests that at the time of jesus the old testament canon was fixed in other words, it had been fully determined, accepted. Some points about the Hebrew canon can be seen in history and in scripture. Okay, according to Jesus, the canonical writings listed in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. That's what it consisted of. Luke twenty four forty four. Everything written in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. That's the division they had of their Old Testament scriptures, of the Hebrew scriptures. And Jesus looks at those things as authoritative. He says those must be fulfilled. This would match with the known divisions of Hebrew scripture, law, prophecy, and writings. We talked about that in our previous lesson, two lessons ago. Another statement by Jesus supports that the canon is the same books that we have today. And that's found in Luke chapter 11, verse 51. From the blood of Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, which perished between the altar and the temple, verify, verily I say unto you, it shall be required of this generation. 
Okay. Would you read that one more time? So he lists Abel and Zacharias. Here are two martyrs, really the first and the last. Abel was in Genesis, the first book of the, Holy, of the Hebrew Bible. And Zechariah in 2 Chronicles, that's chapter 24, verses 20 through 21, which in the Hebrew arrangement is the last book of the Bible. Now, ours is arranged differently. But as the same books that we have in the Old Testament, as those were arranged in the time of Jesus... He mentions a martyr that is mentioned in the beginning, you know, at the early parts of Genesis, the very first book. And then he mentions a martyr that is mentioned in Second Chronicles 24 towards the close of the last book of the Hebrew Bible. So he talks about, uh, can I ask you a favor? I'm wondering if this is giving me a headache, this new one. Could you get me just a lapel? This is a big ordeal. John, talk while I'm doing this. I was starting to look like Garth Brooks. I almost sang a rendition of Friends in Low Places. That wouldn't have probably went over well, but still. Okay. A to Z, that works too. That absolutely works. So it's first book, last book. So his reference here is inclusive of everything in between. Thirdly, Josephus states that the Jews had only 22 books justly believed to be divine. Now, why would that on the surface seem to be a problem? Yeah, how many does your Old Testament have? How many? 39. Okay, so they say only 22. Josephus, who was, is considered to be one of the greatest Jewish historians ever, and generally very accurate. This, however, creates no problem when one considers that the minor prophets were considered one book. All the 12 minor prophets, one book in the Hebrew Bible. And books like Judges and Ruth, Judges through Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, and 1st and 2nd Kings, and 1st and 2nd Chronicles, and Ezra and Nehemiah, and Jeremiah and Lamentations were grouped together as one book. Therefore, when we subtract the minor prophets, 12, from our total, we get 27. And when we subtract the previously mentioned groupings, that's 12 more, we get 15. Now we add back one book for the grouped minor prophets, one, and one for each of the other groupings, that's six, and we get 22. 22. Which is the same exact books that we have in our current English Old Testament Bible. 
All right, the New Testament canon. Justin Martyr, who was a second century Christian writer, stated that on Sundays in Christian worship assemblies, the memoirs of the apostles were read together with the writings of the prophets. Therefore, soon after the apostolic age, the apostles' writings were being read as scripture. That was second century, so that's in the 100s. He writes that it was common practice in pretty much every worship service. They would read these memoirs of the apostles. Some points concerning how this came about. Number one, the letters of the apostles were naturally received with respect and reverence by the early church. For how could they not and show respect to Christ who had appointed those men as his voice, as his messengers? First to be gathered together would have been Paul's letters. So Philippians, Colossians, the letters of the Apostle Paul, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Followed by the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then all of the others. Because these collections were made at different times and places, they were not always the same. So when you're talking about the end of the 1st century, beginning of the 2nd century, up into the, even the middle and end of the 2nd century, you would have a church in one place who they had a collection of authorized writings that they would use as scripture. And the church down the road, you know, 50 miles or whatever, they would have a collection, but theirs might have a book or two that this one didn't. And why does that need to disturb us? Well, no, because they didn't have any New Testament when those letters were actually written. I mean, it didn't exist yet. So it's being compiled. That's the process whereby it was being compiled. Some of the books received more resistance than others and were not originally universally accepted without hesitation. There were at least two reasons for this. First of all, because of the different, quote, collections, a book might be questioned by those who had not had it previously in another region. So there could have been books that were, you know, familiar to the Syriac Christians over in the Eastern Roman Empire that were different than those in Rome that they had access to. So because they hadn't seen it, I mean, they can't have a Facebook page where they discuss canonical writings. I mean, they didn't have access to that. In fact, most of them would never have any contact with people all the way across the known world. So naturally, that's going to be a sifting process, right? As more letters become more available and more familiar to others. But also, sometimes a question about authorship posed a problem. This was especially true, more so than any other book, with the book of Hebrews, which shouldn't surprise us in any way, should it? Why? Because the author is not named in the book of Hebrews. So there, of course, was some difficulty in accepting it by some. It must be noted, however, that all of our books were eventually universally accepted based upon their own individual merit and content. And of course, we cannot forget God's guiding providence. Now, I have read some of the, these other letters from the time. Not all of them, because my collection of the Anti-Nicene Fathers is quite, it's a big volume, okay? I mean, like an encyclopedia set. And I've read some of them, not all of them. And 
Some of them are quite good, but I will tell you that you can get a sense of these even from their own content that they're not like what we have in our Bible, right? Good stuff sometimes, but the content is not consistent with the quality, which would make perfect sense when you have something written by man and something written by inspiration from God. All right. It, the third reason, so we've talked about the letters of the apostles were naturally received and respected. There were these collections that formed into the canon. Thirdly, the inherent authority of each of the 27 books eventually caused all to be universally accepted. The following is a progression of this universal acceptance. So by the third century, the 200s, there was something called Origins List. Not Schindler's List, Origins List. And Origins List, all the books mention, are mentioned that we have in our New Testament. And it says that Hebrews, James, 2nd and 3rd John and Jude were questioned by some. But it contains the exact list of what we have. Fourth century, Eusebius had a list that he mentions in his writings. All the books are mentioned, and he says that James, 2nd Peter, 2nd and 3rd John, and Jude were suspected, but accepted by the vast majority. And by 367 AD, there was a fellow by the name of Athanasius. Athanasius, oh, that's all we'll say it. Is that how you say that, Ron? I don't know. Well, <laughs> I don't we're going to call him Athanasius, okay? Athanasius of Alexandria had a list, and so by 367 AD, his list contained all of our 27 books and said that they were universally accepted by every church. So that's kind of the progress of how that works. So in the span of less than 300 years, it developed into what was now universally accepted. The early church was very critical of the letters they received and did not kind of casually add letters to the canon. Oh, we got a new letter. Let's put it in the Bible. They didn't do that. In fact, thousands, thousands of good letters were in existence which were rejected wholesale as not being inspired. Now, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, we are going to have to accept that our Bible is authentic, that it contains everything we need, and that God's hand was in the providential development of that. Because as we've said on every point in Christian evidences, this is not a question of proof. God doesn't provide us proof. God provides us evidence. If he were to provide proof, I've told you this, I've hammered this over and over, proof was not God's objective. Proof is counterproductive to God's objective. Because without what? It's impossible to please God. Without faith. Faith doesn't exist where there is proof. Now belief does. But not faith. 
Because faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. God gave us in every way to know that he is, to know that his will is true, to know that he is guiding and helping us in our lives, to know that he has provided salvation over sin, all of the above. God has given us ample evidence, but not proof. Because what God didn't want is what he had for, uh, we don't know how long, but he had in the angels. He had those who believed in him. But angels don't have faith like you and I have faith. They don't have to. Why? They've seen it. They've seen him. Why do you think it is that Jesus said about Thomas, blessed are you because you've touched my hands and my side, but more blessed are those who believe and have not. At the end of, is it John's writing? It says, these, Jesus did many, many more things in the presence of his disciples, which were not recorded in this book. But these have been recorded so that you may believe and that believing you may have life in his name. They were given as an evidence to help us develop faith. So I think it would be very productive for us when we're talking with people about the Lord, about if there is a God, if the Bible's true, all of the above. When people say, well, I want to see some proof, say, well, then we just want to talk. Because I don't base what I believe on truth, I'm on proof, I base it on what God wants. Faith. Faith. Faith that's rooted in evidence, yes. But faith. All right, that is, wow, we went through a whole lesson in 20 minutes. I've got more, though, so we can do more. But I, I, I just, this is like a milestone. And the sermon was a little short this morning. I mean, things are, things are happening. I had a headache, that's true. But I mean, I might preach for two hours in the second service because I'm feeling better already. <laughs> So suddenly, we're going to have a low crowd in the second service. <laughs> Comments, thoughts, questions? John. And I think that's probably because he wanted them to have real faith. You know, Jesus could have, and Jesus uses very vague language a lot of times with his disciples. And they won't understand the fulfillment until after it's already been fulfilled, right? Resurrection, kind of the first thing 
I mean, that comes to mind. Huh? That wasn't vague. Well, no, it wasn't vague, but to them it was because it wasn't clear. It wasn't clear. And Jesus, I mean, he did make clear, I will rise again, but he, he didn't sit them down and, at least not that we know of, and just lay it out. Let me be clear again. Let me, no, no, no. He, I think he kind of wanted them to be a little surprised, right? Because now their faith has come to full, I mean, I didn't see this, but yes, now it all makes sense. And isn't that how faith even works for us? I mean, if you've ever had a sermon or a Bible class that really, really impacted you because it opened up for you something in Scripture you, you knew was there, but you hadn't really seen it before. Everybody's had that happen, right? I mean, in that, that's the most faith-building thing ever. Because the thing is, the apostles had to have faith too. They had to have faith. And here's, here's the thing. I've told you this before. I get so tired of this discussion about miracles you know, well, why do we not have miracles here and that and the other? We don't have miracles because we live in a better age. We do. And it's so strange that Christians think that we live in an inferior time. Because they look and, well, we didn't get to see Jesus in the flesh. And we, don't get to see, we didn't get to see miracles happen and all that. That's because miracles are not really rooted about, they're not about faith. Miracles aren't, they don't build faith. I mean, two million, two million Hebrews left Egypt and walked across the sea on dry ground. And how many of them had faith? I mean, they saw some serious miracles, right? But how many miracles did Jesus do? How many people had faith? Just the few that were his followers in the end. That doesn't produce faith. Miracles had a purpose, and that was to say, the person speaking to you is the authority to speak from God. Listen to this person. That was true in the prophets. That was true in Jesus. But it wasn't about building what God wants, which is faith. We live in the greatest time. I think the greatest, some of the greatest champions of the kingdom of God will not just be found in the pages of the Bible. They'll be found in 1850 and in 1950 and in 2050 because we'll get to heaven and I think we're going to hear all the great accomplishments of the Chuck Andersons of the world and the Jerry Tallmans who in the greatest age, the age of faith, lived by faith and not by sight and chose God chose to believe based on evidence, yes, but chose to, to really have faith. The proof of this is Jesus talks about John the Baptist. Remember that? I see Keith. I'll get you right after this. I just don't want to forget it. Jesus talks about John the Baptist. He says, of all those born of women, there's been none greater than John the Baptist. That's an odd statement in and of itself because that's a pretty big grouping of people, right? Including Moses, David, Daniel, Joseph, all, all the great heroes of faith. But he says of all of them, nobody greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. That's what Jesus said. When is the kingdom of heaven? The kingdom of heaven had not been established when John the Baptist left this earth. The kingdom of heaven was established with the establishment of the church at the moment 
that the church came into being on the day of Pentecost. So he says, he who is least in the church is greater than John the Baptist, who is greater than Moses, who is greater than David, who is greater than Abraham, who is greater than Joseph, who is greater than, and we can go on and on and on and on and on. You live in the greatest time. And he says least in the kingdom. Least. Least. That means we have a fellow who, who comes to church once a month because he's struggling with his alcoholism or whatever other issue in his life. And he's just falling and getting back up and just kind of, kind of just wrestling his way through life and faith, trying to live for the Lord. And you would consider that to be the least in the kingdom of God. He's greater than Abraham. That's what Jesus said. That means it's true. Why? Because it takes a lot of faith to believe in God today. It takes a lot of faith. And it isn't easy. It isn't easy. It takes a lot of faith without any proof. Without any proof. Don't ever, ever think that we don't live in a great time. We do. The other thing is I'm tired of people complaining about how bad the world is. I think it's just kind of, you ever have your kids ask you for something and you get it for them and then they don't like it? I made a mistake one time. Several Christmases ago, my daughter bought me a gift. She was so excited about it. And I've been more healthy the last couple of years. You know, I now run most days and, and try to you know, do well in that regard. But at that time, it's, yeah. Thank you. Thank you for being clear. But I have, I have, I have been, I think it's because I had to, because of my lung issues, you know, I had to step up my game. But I was just kind of pretty much about eating what I wanted. And um, I thought a sedentary lifestyle was the best kind of lifestyle at that time, you know, 20 pounds ago. And, and my daughter decided to get me a Fitbit for Christmas. A Fitbit. The key word there is fit. I mean, bacon bits would have been okay. But a Fitbit? And I did not, I didn't say, oh, I hate this, but I just didn't have the right reaction. You know the Christmas reaction you're looking for? You know, Lenora's, we love I love to give her presents more than anybody in the whole world because Lenora is like, at 48 years old, she's still like a little kid. I mean, when she opens she claps her hands like this. It is, it is absolute joy. I'm telling you, it is absolute joy. Because that's what, the, you know, but I didn't have the greatest reaction because I'm like, oh, you want me to be fit? I mean, it's like if I bought Lenora an ironing board for Christmas, you know? You know or a treadmill. That would be worse. You know, it's like, and I didn't have the greatest reaction, you know? And where was I going with this? What? Yeah, the, like the world. I was on the world, that's right. I had this profound thought. It's the headache. Although it's gone now. Tell me where I was going. That's, that's what I was going to say. That's exactly right. We, I, I was talking about gifts and 
You ask for something, but what's even worse, I didn't ask for a Fitbit. I didn't even ask for bacon bits, but I didn't ask for a Fitbit. But she gave this to me, and I wasn't very appreciative. And she still brings that up. I mean, I've got to make sure now. If she gets me something, I've got to be hyper excited, you know. But have you ever, we bought our kids a few things a few times that they'd asked for. Maybe earlier on, then maybe they'd changed their mind and wanted something else. We'd get it for them, and they just don't seem that appreciative. But it would be even worse if they complained. You know, all my life, I've heard the Lord's church ask the Lord for one thing. I mean, a lot of things, but one, one all my life. Lord, help us to be the church of the New Testament. Lord, help us to be first century Christians. You've heard that phrase in the Lord's church? Yeah. Do you know that the 21st century looks more like the first century than ever before? In our lifetimes? Or in our parents' or grandparents' lifetimes? He gave us a world very similar to the first century in which to be first century Christians. Didn't he give us exactly what we've asked for? Exactly what we've asked for. Yet we look at, look at what they're doing in Washington. I mean, in 1 Peter, they're not like, look at what they're doing in Rome. Can you believe it? No, because Romans act like Romans. You know, politicians are going to act like politicians. Worldly people are going to act like, duh, worldly people. But God's given us what we, and in an environment like this one, the Lord's church thrived and grew because it wasn't consisting of people who just wring their hands, pull out their hair, mumble and complain. It was consisted of people who had a mission of faith and went into all the world to preach the gospel. That's my two cents. And that's where that story was going. Thank you, Ron. You saved my day. Other comments? Oh, Keith, you had a comment. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. I believe that every word. I believe that every word of all 66 books is perfect and inspired by God. Now, the translations, there have been issues with that. But as far as 
it being perfect and inspired by God and reliable and a standard by which I could live my life. And some of the educated elite would say that that makes me a doofus. If so, I'm a doofus for Jesus and not afraid to be because that's the deal. I mean, if it's, if, because here's the deal. I'm not going to allow that academic, that elitist, to be able to tell me what's true and what isn't in there because I don't want to follow the wisdom of a man and I don't care what man it is. Because I think I'm, you know, he may be smart, but I'm not dumb. I just will follow my own wisdom. I'm going to follow his, right? I'm looking for the words of the divine. There were other comments? Yes. Uh, I know you know this. It just needs to be qualified a little bit. Uh, there are some things in the Bible that aren't true. The, the fact that they were said is true. But what is said is not true. Job's friends, for example. Oh, yeah. Their theology was untrue, but they actually said that. Answer, uh, right. There are things in the Bible that aren't true. Right. You have to read it in context. Uh, a great, the best example that I know of for the church is um, God doesn't hear the prayer of sinners. Who said that? Everybody heard that in your life? It wasn't Jesus that said that, was it? And the proof that that can't be accurate is probably Cornelius, right? I mean... He, if, God doesn't, if, if an unbeliever is trying to believe in God and praying to God, God doesn't hear that? I mean, that just makes no sense. But people have built a doctrine around something that's said in Scripture that wasn't said by Jesus, that was said by those arguing with Jesus. So, yeah, that's absolutely true. Thank you, Ron. That's a very important point. We've got to read it in context to know. Otherwise, if you want to, you can make the Bible say anything you want if you pull stuff out of it and put it together in the way that you want to craft it. For instance, I could say we all need to go home and hang ourselves because Judas went and hanged himself and then pull out another passage that says, go ye therefore and do likewise. Yeah. I don't ever heard of that, but that's crazy. Yeah. Uh-huh. Right. Right. You have to read it in context. And that's trying to present it to you with Absolutely. Anyone else? Any other comments? We got lots of time for them today. This is the day to speak up, Keith. Yeah. 
Very true. I think that the way going forward for the Lord's church in this society, and, and I have every confidence that the kingdom of God will never be destroyed, that the church will survive and it will thrive and flourish. And I, I'll just tell you, I get so sick, so sick of the, the, even the attitude that we have in the church about things. I mean, I, I still get the Christian Chronicle only because it's free, you know? And I'll never send them a penny because I think they should be Christian before being journalists. And, and the thing that drives me crazy about it is they, just like all journalism, they focus on everything controversial in the brotherhood. You know, there was an article six months ago in there about some big event that happened in Dallas where they were trying to talk about if we could accept homosexuality or not in the church. Well, first of all, we know that that's just absurd and secondly, because we don't, we're not going to accept adultery. We're not going to accept, I mean, we're going to love people who've committed adultery. We're going to love people who struggle with homosexuality. We're going to, because that's what the Bible says to do. But we're not going to change the scriptures. And because there's some tiny fragment of the Lord's church that are losing their mind about things, why is that necessary to put a two-page spread in a brotherhood paper and make people think everything's falling apart? When they could have done a, an article on Northern Michigan missions, right? On, there are so much positive going on in the brotherhood, but yet we focus on so much negative. Because that's what the world does. Here's the thing. We are more than conquerors. The Lord's church in this, you guys, in the brotherhood scheme of things, Michigan's kind of a little bit out of the mainstream, right? I mean, it's not in the Bible Belt. It's not where all the colleges are. It's not where... But when I tell people that we have a 400-member congregation in Michigan that's growing, that's above budget this year and doing all this mission work and winning people and, and have all these... And that we have a, a third of our members sit here who are converted as adults. I mean, that just doesn't happen very many places. And I'm like, how is that possible? Because... What are you all doing? And they're looking for a program. We have Bring, Teach, Keep, but that's even kind of an idea. That's not even really a program. We don't have any programs. What we have is people who love the Lord and they're committed and drive halfway across the Metroplex to come to church and 150 or 175 of you do it twice every Sunday. That's called commitment. 
and loving each other and loving the Lord and loving people when they walk in here, even if they have tattoos on their arms or even if they've struggled because we know we're all sinners. And it's just called being a Christian. That's not much of a program. It's a lifestyle. And so we need to just get back. That's why I was going to say, I think the future in this society is we really need to, I'll tell you, I want to I see, I have so many friends from preaching all over this country that I love my Facebook and Instagram and stuff to be able to see what's going on in their lives. But I get so tired. And some of you have made me so proud. A few of you have put on your Facebook, I'm not putting anything else on here about religion unless it's just positive verses or whatever, but not to argue religion, not to argue politics, not to argue. Because we just, we need to be, it just hurts our image. Our, our mission is not to change the world politically, societally. Our mission is to change ourselves. And then one at a time over a coffee table, or today at Starbucks, okay, to change other people one at a time. That's all Jesus told us to do. That's all he told us to do. Change ourselves and one person at a time. And if we do that, the church cannot fail. Because the devil can't fight against that. He can't. He has no power. But yet, the devil, I'll tell you another thing. The devil, the devil is crafty and he has thousands of years of experience at what he does. He's made mistakes. Colossal mistakes. He put Jesus on the cross. I don't think he thought what happened would happen if he did that, right? He persecuted the first century and second century church. And I still hear brethren grumble about, we might be persecuted. Well, we're not protected from that. But I'm not so sure that's going to happen. He's gotten farther through complacency than he ever did through persecution. The devil tried that. And the definition of a fool is to try something and fail at it and then do the exact same thing again. But he's been more effective now because, I mean, we got nice cars. And get, nothing wrong with nice cars. I mean, Abraham was filthy rich, right? David was filthy rich. God didn't care about that stuff. But when you care about that stuff rather than him, that's when there's a problem. But we have all this stuff, and that's fine. It can be used for great good, great good. But he makes us complacent. He causes us to focus on the wrong things. He causes us to get so upset about what others are doing rather than trying to transform ourselves. We need to transform ourselves. That needs to be our primary purpose, to become, to renew ourselves by the transforming of our minds. That's what it says. Which is our spiritual service of worship, Romans 12, 1 and 2. The Christian life is about beating the devil through beating yourself. Through winning the victory inside. You live in a great time. And you're doing, you're doing quite well. Keep it up. Love you guys. See you in three Sundays.
A Fitbit. It's one of those. Oh, my mic's on. A Fitbit.